Welcome back to the Masters of Theology podcast. Today, our conversation is with Dr. Kreider. I initially met Dr. Kreider during my first semester at DTS in his theological method class. Just a few minutes into the lecture, I knew I had made the right decision by sitting in the front row. Dr. Kreider's lectures impacted and challenged me in both intellectual and intimate ways, and I didn't shy away from any of it. Dr. Kreider is a professor of theological studies at Dallas Theological Seminary and the editor-in-chief of Bibliotheca Sacra. Dr. Kreider holds a THM and PhD in theological studies from DTS. His focuses of research and practice include theological method, theology and popular culture, Jonathan Edwards, and R.S. Catalogical Hope. I should also introduce my co-host, Blake Mulish, a Master's of Arts in Biblical Counseling graduate from DTS. Blake is a warm and caring friend who focuses on the personal side of things. He's an invaluable companion to have in the conversation, as you'll hear, and I thank him very much for doing this with me. And with that, here is our conversation with Dr. Kreider. Do you consider yourself to be a master of theology? I have a master's of theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. So, but that doesn't make me a master of theology. Mm -hmm. It makes me uh, having completed the coursework for a degree. And I don't think anybody ever masters theology. So, I mean, that's the obvious um, right answer to the question. Sure. But, but no, I'm not a master of theology. Yeah. We weren't we weren't sure to what answer to expect. So mm. we thought maybe some people might say it. Mm. Is there is there a sense where I mean, in a perfect world, somebody could be, but would make no. somebody a master? No. No. Um, creatures could never master um, a response. If the theology is a response to Revelation, and Revelation is pretty intensive, pretty extensive. Uh, a creature would never be able to master it. And since God doesn't do mm. theology, um, he would be the only one who would have comprehensive knowledge. But he's the revealer. We're the responders. So, no, a creature could never be the yeah. master. Okay. You can master subject matter, perhaps. Uh, you can ma master little slivers. But even that's a bit of a misnomer. I think it's rooted in this weird... Um, ego of, um, and the optimism of being able to master. I mean, if you you could if you go to market a degree that says you'll know a little bit about something that yeah. might be helpful sometime, nobody's gonna <laughs> sign up. But if we tell you, you'll be a master. Yeah, so, yeah. It's more. So, it's, are we just lying when we advertise the degree? <laughs> um, I think we are using language that everybody recognizes mm -hmm. is yeah. not literal. Fair enough. Like yeah. most of the language we use about. Everything we talk about, including what I just said. Yeah. So you said God doesn't do theology. So I'm trying to work through that. God reveals to us aspects of himself. We construct what we would call theology around the revelation right. to interpret that, you know, in a way that's understandable to us. The, but the revelation itself isn't theology. Is that what you would, how would you say that? Yeah, God reveals, we respond, and that response is theology. Theology, historically understood as faith-seeking understanding, or understood as, I don't know how to say it better than, it's a response to what God has revealed. God chooses and has chosen how much of himself to reveal. Mm -hmm. We're accountable for what we have received. And it, theology is words about God, discourse about God. It's a response to theology, yeah. which is um, the way, uh, what's his name, 
Westminster. Uh, I knew that would happen. Happens to me all the time. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's not supposed to happen to masters. Well, there you go. <laughs> it's all right. You aren't. BB so Warfield. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's BB Warfield. Oh, okay. Back in 1892, I think it was, uh, defined theology as a response to Revelation. I, he's he's so right about that. Okay. It was. I, mean, I kind of come to that idea myself, um, but then to read that Warfield said it 100 years ago, yeah. 50 years before I was born. I had that happen once in a paper. I was looking for a source and I just had kind of given up on it and I just did like a Google search for, you know, a, a quote basically. <laughs> there was. And a paper from Warfield, from B.B. <laughs> Warfield. And I didn't even know it was his. Mm. I, I, I read the whole thing and I was at the, I was like, wow, this is wonderful. I hope someone important wrote this. <laughs> and it was signed like, you know, B.B. Mm. something. And I was like, is that? Mm. Oh, it is. Nope. It's perfect. Nope. <laughs> so it is great. That, that sheds some light on... <clears throat> how theology is done in community, which is something I, I've heard you emphasize before. Um, those ideas are almost never new or original, but rather they're constructed from a community of conversation. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. from what, from, from that's kind of me reciting what I've learned from you, honestly, um, how would you, how would you define theology being done in community? How would I define it? How, well, how does that look? <clears throat> um, yeah. It's, um, every creature is located somewhere and has certain experiences that frame and shape the way he or she sees the world. And that what works really well is when uh, people with a variety of perspectives and experiences and ways of looking at things have the chance to talk to one another and to... Um, and to talk to one another. It's, it's why we pictured my co-writer and I in the Practical Primer Theological Method. I think that's what it's called. Uh, we always called it Table Manners to yeah. Stay. That's our shorthand for the book. And we, it's why we constructed the, uh, the Theological Taskus group of people sitting around the table. that They're responding to Divine Revelation, which is laying on the table. Mm. And, but from a variety of disciplines, from a variety of uh, backgrounds and perspectives, and it'd be really nice if you could bring to the table people from history. Mm. And what we have are the artifacts they've left behind. We have books that they've written and articles, podcasts. Right. Um, but uh, a, it's a difference between a presentation of something for the public and a and a thinking through something. Some, something just happens. When people are together, the Spirit of God works in the community in a way he doesn't work in individuals. Um, and there's something happens in that, in that interaction that happens uh, as people sit around and, and talk together. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's what, for me, it's what happens uh, when I walk into a classroom, although mm -hmm. I'm often doing most of the talking. There's something happens in that room that doesn't happen when I'm sitting in my office or to, when I'm thinking about what I'm going to say. And that was incredibly intimidating for me early on in teaching because I have these, I'd prepare what I was going to say. Yeah. And, or I do, I do the same course several times and every section is different. So I had this great idea and it worked really well in the morning class. And in the afternoon class, it'd go or the or vice versa. Wow. Uh, or I, we end up talking about this and never even get to that. Uh, because something happens when people are together. 
It's really, it's really interesting being in your classes, and I think I catch that right away that that means a lot to you, having the different perspectives, and you say, bring it to the table. I feel you bringing it, bringing those things up in class, kind of pushing really students' boxes on how they think and trying to bring perspectives to change people. What I notice in class is a lot of people push back against that. And so I kind of wanted to ask you mm-hmm. when I heard we were going to meet, what is that like for you when people push against that? You talk about something special happening when we have perspectives, but that gets pushed back against a lot, uh, not just in the classroom, obviously. But what's that like for you? How do you how do you work with that? Yeah, there, there, I mean, there's all kinds of things I could that pop into my head thinking about that methodologically. Um, one is that sometimes pushback comes from people who don't know why. Mm. And I think there is, what the, what's it called in your discipline? Implied motivation. Yeah, so, sure. Yeah. I heard Andy Thacker talked about that to yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and how there are all kinds of reasons why people hear what they hear the mm-hmm. way that they hear and the, the response to it. I mean, sometimes it's code word. It's a shibboleth they were taught to avoid. Sometimes it's, it's this emotional experience. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's, a, it's fear of realizing if, I, if he's right about this, then it's going to change all kinds of other things. And sometimes it's, I really don't care. And I don't know why he cares about that. Uh, uh, so all kinds of things going on. But the other thing I've, I've come to appreciate is people don't change their minds the first time they hear something new. Mm-hmm. It takes repetition. It takes, it takes sitting with it for a while. It takes trying it out. Um, and... Um, so you know, early on in my career, I was the guy because this is the way I learned. I was the guy who loved deconstructing, uh, who, who loved saying, <laughs> "I know this is what you were taught, but this simply is indefensible. It doesn't work." Yeah. And, and that kind of that confrontational style that I, I've come to appreciate, not it doesn't work for most people or for a lot of people. I don't know how to quantify that. And that actually what it what it does for somebody whose learning style is radically different than mine is it's it's really hard to rebuild trust. It's really hard to Yeah. I mean if if you're blowing everything up, it's hard to and then to realize that somebody told me a couple of years ago, one of my colleagues told me, <laughs> you realize that, that you're teaching truth in a culture where people haven't been taught that so that Defending orthodoxy is shocking and provocative for for people. So mm-hmm. yeah, I've, I've thought a lot about that because I, I I think as much about my craft as I do the theological content. Absolutely, yeah. Because it, I mean I I've been teaching that for a couple of decades, mm-hmm. and the student population is significantly different. Don't ask me how. <laughs> it's really quantifying <laughs> yeah. is is so difficult, but it. And it is different, and every every semester is different, and so mm. yeah, it's been challenging uh, to to think about how to move people, so people from here to here. So I had a Bible college prof who actually he, I don't say this several times. Uh, he said, "If I want to get you to here, and you're here, I'm over here." 
in the hopes that you'll come here a little closer. And what I've, I think what I learned the hard way was people don't make this move. They move further away. Mm-hmm. No one could hope maybe to, to swing the pendulum all the way back around and come over here, but that usually doesn't happen that way. It's a, um, theology is both an art and a science, and teaching, obviously, is to mentoring, is to communication. Yeah. Is to. Yeah. Do you, I mean, it, it sounds... Everything you just said sounds like you could be talking about evangelism as well, right? Mm-hmm. Is it the same sort of thing? Like mm-hmm. it's less about maybe seeing that change in a person, but more about kind of planting the ideas. And is that kind of your goal, you think, with students? Just kind of, hey, at least they heard it once and it might come up again, or um, at least they're aware. I don't know. Is that the goal? 25 years ago or so, um, a student at Campus Crusade, staff person, now crew, <laughs> 20 years from now, probably something else, um, introduced me to a book that Tim Downs had written called, I think it's called Common Ground. And what Downs argued in that book was the American church, and particularly his parachurch organization, had viewed evangelism as harvesting and that the church has tended, and to, we did too, we poured all of our resources into the harvesting. We poured, we, we, we elevated and honored people who had these great results. And he said that if the agricultural metaphor works, there, there's the planter, the person who prepares mm-hmm. the ground, the planter. I read that somewhere in First Corinthians, I think. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, that was really helpful for me. I actually interacted with him a bit uh, I think an email. I think they had email back then. <laughs> I couldn't think of how. Uh, I think we did interact via email. And uh, that was really helpful for me because um, I, on the uh, spiritual gifts inventory, I, I have never, nobody ever responds to an invitation. Um, I was Baptist for years. And yeah. Nobody ever responds. Um, and yet I have friends who sit on an airplane next to somebody and the guy mm-hmm. says, I'd like to become a Christian. That yeah. never happens to me. Uh, so, I, you know, there's this, we all do what we do in the midst of making disciples. So, yeah, it is, uh, uh, um, these things all overlap and intersect. The, the skills and the approaches and the methodologies are all interrelated and yeah. intertwined. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, then... <laughs> the, one of the places where you would clearly see that is whether it's evangelism or apologetics, the, the responses from 30 years ago are not working. Uh, the questions are different, and to try to frame questions in a way to fit our answers is, I think, less and less helpful, even worse than that. I think it's disrespectful and dishonoring to the question answer. Yeah. But, I mean, that's part of our deal thing, too. I was trained, I was raised in a generation where we did a lot of talking. Yeah. And we, so, sometimes it's good just to shut up and listen <laughs> from the guy who yeah, took yeah. your question and talked for 20 minutes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a podcast about you. You're allowed, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what control freak people do. That's what yeah. fearful people do. Um, you control mm-hmm. what's going on if you're doing the, the yeah, talking. I couldn't agree more. We honestly just had this conversation at our staff meeting, and I brought up 
what I found in myself was so much insecurity breeding mm-hmm. that kind of thing, right? You just said fear. That's really what it is. It's like yeah. fear that what I believe really isn't good enough to convince anybody. Mm-hmm. And in reality, convincing somebody through speech is yeah. kind of a second-rate way to do it. <laughs> and at the same time, there are things which, I mean, I try to justify myself. There are things that I know. Uh, but I, mean, I guess the other thing for me that might be helpful methodologically, I, th- I think out loud. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes in answering a question, and I know this frustrates some students, uh, just like once in a while somebody will say, this is a yes or no question. It's like, yeah. well, okay, yes. Maybe but, at the end. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because there are very few questions that are that simple. And that because I'm yeah. a systematician, I'm always trying to see how things are connected because right. nothing is disconnected from everything else. Even if the answer is yes or no, it 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 fits into a bigger framework. Yeah. It, it needs to be understood in a context, in a culture, you know, within even a person's mind. So mm-hmm. one thing you said about the questions changing, I was thinking, has the framework itself changed? One thing you, you mentioned in that introductory class is talking about postmodernism and how maybe the apologetics questions of yesterday no longer apply. No one cares about them. No one listens to them. Partially, I think, because the culture has changed. So um, could you define postmodernism for us? I know that's something uh, I found pretty enlightening uh, Mm. from your teaching. Mm -hmm. So I think postmodernism is the era that follows modernism. So if we divide human history into the three categories of the Enlightenment and rationalism, the uh, modern, call that modernism, right. uh, the Enlightenment thinkers thought they were doing something that turned the light on to the, everything before that was dark. And there really was, although that's a bit of a, it's more than a bit, it's pretty pejorative of thousands of years of human history, thousands of years of, of, of thought. But there was, it's what they did was different. I mean, completely flipping Epistemology and metaphysics is, I mean, it's, it's that they completely flipped it. So we went moved from, to use more uh, user friendly language, went from faith seeking understanding to understanding seeking faith. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't work. And yeah. simply, I mean, yeah. we, we watch what happens in history. That's the story of the 20th century to watch what happens when people have power and control and knowledge and don't know how to use it. So, uh, and if there has no connection to a metaphysical world, mm-hmm. uh, so that the shift then, in the what has been called the postmodern turn in the 20th century, is a is a return to, in some senses, it's not all the way back. We're never going back. That's not the way uh, progress progress works. Yeah. But so the the real simple answer is postmodernism is what follows modernism. It's a return to the scheme that I like. It's now. We're not back to faith-seeking understanding, but faith-seeking understandings. Mm. And that the the plural, I mean, the radical relativism of modernity, I don't trust anybody, anybody but myself. I'm my own. Uh, I'm the center of the universe. I, uh, uh, I doubt everything except my existence. All of those things lead to radical relativism and individualism. And I, I see, it's one of the things I think many people misunderstand about postmodernism. They see postmodernism and they, they see it as relativistic and individualistic. 
um, I think that's radical modernism. Yeah. And that postmoderns recognize the importance of community, uh, recognize that we'll never know everything, to recognize that there's some skepticism and agnosticism, some humility about knowledge and the world we live in. Metaphysics is alive and well again. So, I mean, I think it's an exciting time to be a Christian. The challenge, though, to kind of the heart of your question, yeah. before you ask the follow-up question, <laughs> um, is that I, or where you were going with that, what I thought was a question, is that to approach ministry, to approach apologetics, to approach what we do uh, related to the gospel as if we still live in the modern world that the, what drives people is a desire to be logical mm -hmm. and connected and demonstrate that this is the right answer. <laughs> that in a multicultural world, in a pluralistic world, and I don't mean anything by that other than, I, mean, I tell students all the time at Dallas Seminary, you don't even have to get in a car and you can be exposed to half a dozen different languages and radically different cultures within walking distance of the seminary. Yeah. Uh, cultures are not monolithic any longer. So to, I mean, to figure out how to talk to people where they are and to listen in order to learn that, I think is a really important skill. Yeah. So one thing uh, I heard recently, I believe it was from Dr. Hanna, was talking about Jonathan Edwards and how he, at least to some extent, predicted uh, the result of modernism. I think what he predicted was something closer to a nihilistic lack of meaning. Um, but I was going to ask if what you thought of, of that. I know you've at least studied uh, Jonathan Edwards to some extent, and then maybe a follow-up on that. What do you think is so special about Jonathan Edwards? We seem to have a, a current fascination with him. Mm. Um, <clears throat> he, owns, he owns slaves, and any question that doesn't say that right up front when Edward's name is mentioned is somebody's missing really important opportunity to address the horrific experience of Africans who were owned by him. Uh, that's not related to your yeah, question, no, except it is, because uh, in 2021, any conversation that mentions his name has to talk mm. about that. Uh, I, I I probably view Edwards and his relationship to the Enlightenment differently than Dr. Hanna does. Um, I I think he is the last great pre-modern, um, and I don't think he knew enough about modernity to um, to be able to predict. Um, and yet, by the same token, he was he was obsessed with the gospel and conversion. He was obsessed with God as beauty. He was obsessed with order. Uh, he also, I mean, he also was um, at the early stages of um, support for science and those kind of things too. But yeah, I, I mean, his, <clears throat> his he's, he's a fascinating figure. Because at the same time that he is passionate about the gospel, he is he's a racist. Mm. Um, and not simply in his treatment of Africans, who are called barbarians, but Native Americans, from mm -hmm. whom he was really vindictive and cruel and dismissive. 
until he spent some time among them. He never came full circle to appreciate the humanity of the what he called savages. But he he was, and yet by the and he said he got to own slaves, who had Africans who were, and African Americans who were members of his church, which was not that common in, in New England. Of course, they sat in uh, in the in the in the lower class seats because they couldn't afford to purchase really nice pews. It's really nice fundraising uh, thing for churches to do to. Whole seat licenses. I, that's the one thing I remember about him. He was pissed off about it in a sermon, and he said, "You probably know the quote better, but he was something like the worms that eat your bodies when you're in the grave don't care where you sat in the pews.'" I was like, "This guy, man." Wow. What a quote. <laughs> yeah, and yet he perpetuated right. the system. It's, it's fascinating. It is for yeah. me to to think about him. I, I mean, I poured as I told my wife one time and she didn't understand the quote. So I poured the best 10 years of my life into understanding this man. And she said, the best 10 years? I said, yeah, it was in my prime. <laughs> like, um, yeah. And I mean, there's just so much depth to him when we talk about theological topics. And yet he was so wrong on so many, so many things. It, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's interesting to, and that's all it is, a speculation of how he would have responded to the world as it continued to, yeah. to change. What things do you mean by that? What things would you have wanted uh, response to? So I wonder if he would have lived in, uh, into the next generation. I mean, his, his son is an abolitionist, mm -hmm. uh, and the people he trained were, too. And I you know, wonder about, and I've actually worked with some people who are, trying to figure that out. I uh, wonder how, <clears throat> how his followers were able to see what he couldn't see. Mm -hmm. um, his, his treatment of, his elevation of even the hagiography he, he, he writes on his wife and other women. It's women who are the major <clears throat> examples for him of the, the way the awakening spreads and the impact of the awakening. And yet, he's, this is the same guy who institutes excommunication for a woman in the church because she drank too much. Yeah. You know, you read through that. He has a stand up um, yes. And, and yeah. just lashes out. I did a paper at ETS a couple years ago with a female student, and, and I, I read a page and a half of that sermon. It just doesn't stop. He calls her everything, any name in the book that you can use in polite company. Um, and, and she's one of, I mean, surely she's not the only woman in that church who drank too much. Uh, just, there's a whole lot of things going on there. And those are the kinds of things that are fascinating and part of what postmodernism um, has helped us to ask questions like this. Is, you know, we haven't heard from those voices. We haven't heard from um, John Wesley's wife. All we know about that relationship is what he said about her. Mm -hmm. uh, surely there's more to the story, and there is. I mean, of course, yeah. Yeah, and um, so I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated. I've always been fascinated with that era of, uh, I was going to say church history, but it's actually that era of 
American history. Yeah. And and the blind spots that are so obvious to us, which is then the thing that keeps me up at night. Because 50 years from now... What are we blind about? Yeah. <laughs> and there's, there's stuff. Yeah. <laughs> there's no question in my mind. Yeah. Because we are all enculturated beings. That doesn't let Edwards off the hook, but it is true mm-hmm. that he was a child of his culture. It's not true that everybody owned slaves in New England. It's not true that everybody defended slave owning. Um, so, yeah, I, we don't know what we don't know until we somebody helped. Which, now we're back to the table. Yeah. Um, I don't know where my blind spots are. And I don't know how my language that makes perfect sense to me is not heard by somebody else or yeah. is problematic for them. And I've worked hard at not remembering those kind of illustrations. <laughs> those, because I don't, I don't uh, although a couple of them popped in my head. <laughs> <laughs> as, as you, yeah. I mean, as you're saying all that, I'm thinking... I'm just thinking Ravi Zacharias, I'm thinking Mark Driscoll, I'm thinking we're seeing the big church leaders kind of fall one by one. Um, and, uh, you know, you talk about blind spots, you talk about hearing from the minority in the situation, right? Hearing from the woman that Jonathan Edwards called out. Um, is that what you, what you see as a benefit of postmodernism? And it sounds like maybe you do, but... Mm-hmm. Um, and is that something the church needs to latch on to as we, as we want the church to grow as people and as a community? Is that the next step forward for us in this postmodern age? Is that hopeful? Is that... <laughs> yeah, I, think it's in, I think it's incredibly hopeful. Yeah. Um, as somebody a whole lot smarter and older than me said, history is told by the winners. Um, theology is written by the powerful. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I mean, people get the people who get publishing contracts are the people who can sell books. The, the and other voices are marginalized, and I, I think there is a an attitude of respect and honor. Um, and, I mean, at, at, its, at its negative side, it's an attempt to take down power. But at its positive side, it's to say, what haven't we seen and heard? It's it's, it's the old. Um, early 20th century view of Christianity that there was not simply one orthodoxy, there are many orthodoxies, which is, I think, demonstrably false. But there are minority voices that haven't been heard, and I, th- I think there's real value in, in hearing and learning that. I mean, that's that's where Christianity in the United States of America is today. Do we listen to... Do we, does the church listen to the voices of the marginalized, which are hard to hear, mm-hmm. or do we respond, or does she respond by defending and, and preserving and protecting the voices of power? I mean, we're, we're watching that in the Southern Baptist Convention explode mm-hmm. right in front of us. We're watching that in the arguments about racism and sexism. I just, a couple days ago, listened to Jamar Tisby's story of leaving um, reformed evangelical theology. It's, it's heartbreaking. Uh, and then, you know, there's more to that story too, but 
but I, 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 you know, I too watched what happened in our community in 2016 and following. I watched the way and heard the way people responded to any number of um, dead African American males uh, at the hands of police. Mm -hmm. And I know statistics. I mean, but I mean, there's just there's those I mean, voices need to be heard. So I, I, I really do think it is challenging and and it's positive that there is respect for those those voices need to be need to be heard those stories need to be told and doing it in a way that doesn't I mean what mentioning racism almost always brings anger and and I, to the, to this day I can't figure out why acknowledging that systemic racism exists is interpreted as trying to make you feel guilty that you're white. And that I don't I don't get that at all. We should not be guilty. We should not feel shame and guilt that we are created in the image of God. But I think it is incredible. I think you have to acknowledge this is a country that's built on slavery. I don't know how that is hard for people to understand. And and that we have privilege by virtue of the color of our skin. Uh, and because of our sex uh, that some other people don't have, I don't feel guilty about that at all. And I think we uh, we have a re we have a stewardship, a responsibility to use power and influence for the sake mm -hmm. of, of of others. And we haven't been sitting here very long. You get we dove deep into. Yeah. The, you warned me we weren't going to do deep theology. <laughs> <laughs> well, at the moment we're deep into uh, I guess cultural philosophy, but. Um, is so one thing I've noticed in your classes is you do go there. You go to these places that we might seem that might seem difficult on on its surface. Uh, when we talk about bringing theology to different cultures and to the culture, I, I think of you because at least as far as as far as I I've seen as far as my teachers go, you're the person who taught that to me and does it the best. Is that? Is that where your passions are in theology? Or I guess another way of putting it, um, what are you most passionate about in mm. teaching your students? Mm. Yeah, that's interesting question. So I'm, as I thought about that question, my uh, Sunday school answer is gonna be, I'm passionate about what I'm doing at the time. Yeah. Which is probably not what you expect. I should say I'm passionate about helping people learn to know Jesus, and that's true. That's too. the Sunday school. Yeah. yeah, but but I am, uh, I really am <clears throat> passionate about how we do theology well, and it, it's not that we learn to think well, as important as that is, but as many have argued, theology always is in service of worship. Theology is always in service of ethics. Service Theology is always in service of ministry. And as I watch, and I've been sitting in church services and going to chapels at Dallas Seminary for a long time, yeah. um, and I watch speakers who connect with the audience, and I watch speakers who connect with an audience that no longer exists. And, and I... I watch what happens out in the world around us 
And uh, so I am deeply concerned that we figure out how to communicate the the incredible story of a God who created a world, turned it over to us, we screwed it up, and he keeps responding to our rebellion and mercy and grace over and over and over and over again. That's who he is. That's what he does. Uh, If that's who he is and that's what he does, then that's what we should be doing. And if that's who he is, what he does, and what we should be doing, then figuring out how to bring <clears throat> so it's not been that long ago that the R word was a almost a curse word, uh, which I've never understood because the opposite of relevance is what irrelevant mm. or dead. Like mm. uh, you know, there's nothing more relevant than the amazing story of redemption that God has told and is telling. But um, <clears throat> we have to figure out how to communicate it really well we I mean I think we and this is what's so fun for me because intuitively we know this we're not reading from the King James anymore yeah not because the King James is a bad translation it was an excellent translation in a world that no longer exists so if we know that about the Bible uh, and the um, and the plethora of English translations that are available that are represented by step in a classroom uh, if we know that about the language of the Bible, then why is it so hard to recognize the importance of knowing how to communicate into the cultures yeah. in which we are found? I don't have missions experience, <clears throat> but I have a lot of friends who do. And um, to have learned from them <clears throat> the importance of, I mean, the days of <clears throat> of getting all the people together who are going into Spanish-speaking countries and teaching them Spanish in a course yeah. in, in doubt. Those days are over. Uh, there's, there's immersion in the, the culture where you're going to serve. and There's just so much about that that seems so obvious to me that the pushback kind of baffles me. So then I wonder, what are you afraid of mm-hmm. if there's pushback? Or I wonder what... How do I communicate more clearly the importance of this? And this is this is pretty simple, pretty simple, pretty simplistic. I know what people are afraid of: mm. sex, because it always comes back around to questions about LGBT, LGBTQI. Uh, so, like, I, I don't. We weren't even talking about that. Why? Why do you? Why does that? And whenever we talk about theology and culture. Uh, so I've actually started to address that fairly early to say, this is an important question, but don't dismiss this because you're concerned about where this might go here. I, yeah. you know, so help. I mean, I don't know if that was helpful to your I think so. question. Yeah. I mean, part of, so I, I came from a culture that was very afraid of both the relative truth idea and, and a lot of things that are, I mean, really obvious to me now mm-hmm. um, and part of what helped me was to relate it back to other ideas that I've had like a pastor for example when he preaches he preaches to his congregation he preaches specific things with the hope with the, the prayer that he will communicate God's word down to them mm-hmm. and condescending God's word down to them to use the, the term that you've kind of broadened my uh, mm-hmm. understanding of as well and so when it comes to be it evangelism or be it Christian living or whatever it may be, when you're reaching the world, when you're behaving like a Christian, 
it, it only follows that just like a pastor would preach differently to a different congregation, that we would live differently in a different culture. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I do struggle with understanding the people who sit in the back of the classroom and, you know, are, are verbally just disagreeing with you or combative. And it, yeah, it's a hard question to answer because uh, to some extent I want to say that there's a blind spot in reaching them mm-hmm. Because, you know, they come from a culture, they have preconceived notions. But, yeah, I, I don't know exactly how to resolve the, the language issue because mm-hmm. there's miscommunication. But, like, I thought about talking to those people and, be, and trying to mediate the language, but I couldn't even come up with a way to do that. So, mm. I, anyways, mm. that, that illustrates, I think, the, the difficulty of certain people reaching certain cultures. Maybe I'm not called to reach that person in terms of, you know, not communicating the gospel per se, but in terms mm-hmm. of communicating theology to them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what do you think about that idea? Are, are, so there's individual gifting. Do you think that there is a, a concept of individual calling where, I mean, right now we're, some people are saying, you know, don't, white people shouldn't go uh, do missions work in Africa. And there might be reasons for that, mm-hmm. but yeah. Do you think that there are certain cultures that certain people are suited for and, and others are off limits? I, I want to push back on the language of calling because of, that's a buzzword yeah. and, and well, a code you. word in, in the church of my youth and adulthood. So to be honest and fair, this is one of the, this might be one of those things where I'm reacting out of a world that no longer exists. But I know what your point was. Okay. And, and yes, I agree. There are, there are places that I am suitable and gifted, qualified, and um, suitable. That's a good word um, to minister in other places that are not. Now, sometimes we don't know. I mean, I, I have, I, if you would have told me 20 years ago, that I would spend as much time working in Asian cultures with Chinese-speaking people, uh, I would have told you I don't like Asian culture. <laughs> I don't like the food. I don't. You know, um, yeah. But I've had incredible opportunities, and I have discovered I actually do um, enjoy the culture. I don't. I mean, I, I like personal space, mm-hmm. so. Getting a, getting off the airplane in in Hong Kong is a whole new experience for me. But you pretty quickly get used to it. My wife struggles with claustrophobia, and so I have to I make myself large when I'm there yeah. to clear up some extra nice. space for her. Um, so yeah, I think there are there are some places that would not be, and and so that yeah. So the answer is yes. I agree with you, and and. It was fascinating to me about what I do, and I learned this a couple years ago in Israel. When I walked into class, I was doing a leveling work for some demon students. And I walk into class, I realized I have no idea what your life is like. I have no idea. I have no idea the culture of of a Jewish um, or an Arab Israeli. I, I have no idea. Uh, so I, I decided I'm going to do a lot more listening than talking about those kind of things because I can give you the content 
of the Trinitarian creeds. I can I can walk you through the biblical arguments for this these positions. But if theology is done in community, if theology is done in culture, I, I want to learn some I want to learn as much as I can from from you guys. And that was and, and it was in probably an hour into that, one of the things I did was instead of my reading Genesis one and two from English, I had one of the one of those guys read it in Hebrew. And yeah. uh, I, I didn't have my Hebrew text with me. And if I did, I wouldn't have been able to follow very well. <laughs> um, that was uh, that was moving for me to listen to the the voices and the and their uh, um, and how it resonated with them. But it was about an hour into that day, I think, when I realized here I'm the outsider. When I go back to Dallas, I'm the insider. And there are students from all kinds of places and all kinds of cultures in the room. And so that's part of what makes the 101 course such a challenge. Um, almost nobody's in there because they selected this prof. Yeah. And they're there, many from somewhere else, this back before COVID. Yeah. Um, they were coming from somewhere else. And so it's, it's a, yeah, I, <clears throat> I'm, uh, probably, I taught for a couple of years at a at a under undergrad institution, an undergrad institution, and I don't think that was a good fit. Okay. Uh, could it have been a good fit? Maybe. So uh, there's no real simple. Some of some of it is a matter your calling is to the opportunities that you have. Yeah. But I do think there are people who are wired in a particular way, and that includes your uh, cultural context. Uh, so we're talking previously about. I grew up in a farm in a rural community, and there was a time I thought, "Is we? I'd love to get back, and be a pastor in a small church in that kind of an environment." Uh, I think those days are over. Mm-hmm. That having become enculturated in Dallas uh, into an urban setting, I, I, don't, I don't think that would work yeah. at all. And it's not just because rural people are skeptical of outsiders. <laughs> um, I grew up in probably the most skeptical kind of community mm-hmm. that, that could have been. So that's a long way to say, yeah, I think you're right about that. I think there's okay. a lot of it is for us figuring, you want to be, you want to figure out what you're good at and how what you're good at connects with the opportunities that are in front of you. So I say yeah. a lot of times, the only thing worse than not having a job is to have a bad job yeah. or to be in a job that doesn't fit. Um, too many people are doing a job just for uh, a paycheck and that doesn't motivate. So f- figuring out what your sweet spot is and, I discovered that a couple years ago. I had the incredible opportunity to get a chance to do what I never thought I would get a chance to do and continue to do it. And um, I, I I would wish that experience for everybody. Figure out what you're good at doing. Mm-hmm. What, you, what you would do if you had, if money were no object and I have, because I, I, that guy is going to say, okay, I just want to sit around it. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah, Take on some responsibility yeah, as well. That's what I was taking yeah. away from what you were saying. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Blake. Dance. Uh, I've always wanted to be a mattress tester. I just yeah. thought it would be a great. Yeah. <laughs> I what I I think what I appreciate, and you're probably not going to like 
saying this if I'm hearing you correctly, but <laughs> what I appreciate about you a lot is, is you have a deep sensitivity to the context of other people's lives. I hear it in your, in your voice about caring about the marginalized and even your answer when I asked you about how you treat students in class, it was very much like, I don't know where they're coming from. I call it intellectual honesty, but mm. it also it also usually comes from a place of, um, you know, digging more into your, your personality and character. It comes from a place of maybe others not really giving your context a chance or giving your, your place, you know. Um, when did that happen for you where that kind of, and maybe it's always been like a gift that, that mm. God has given you, a grace to be able to put yourself in other people's shoes? Or was there kind of a time in your life where, you started to say, if I want to be honest about the world, I need to acknowledge that people come to the table with different things. I think, let me put it this way. So I read on social media recently but in by, when you're my age recently, could have been 10 years ago. But <laughs> I read, so, somebody who said, you can always tell that somebody who talks a lot about grace has something to hide. Wow. And I thought, well, right. I think that people who understand grace are people who have received it and has transformed their lives. Yeah. Uh, I am not the guy that I want to be. Um, I have a great deal of confidence about the things I have confidence about. I have a great deal of, uh, I'm an extreme introvert. I, I, I don't care about people much at all. But that's been broken. Um, mm. My wife and I have been through some difficult times. And I, I think what comes what comes out of going through suffering and difficult times is a is some is a is some compassion and mercy and grace yeah. that uh, not to mention the fact uh, that's the one side of it. The other side is, and I can't I can't put take you to a place in time, but to to realize I, that because. Not everybody thinks the way I do. Not everybody believes the way I do. If my goal is communication of information that is received, because I think it's not just important information, but it actually transforms the way we live and what we do, that grace actually is a thought that could change the world, that uh, I've got to figure out how to at least make an effort to connect uh, Prof. Hendricks um, <clears throat> taught a whole couple of generations uh, how to teach. Um, used to say, at least I heard him say more than once, because he only had the same illustrations that he told over and over again, kind of like the rest of us. <laughs> he said, once you learn to fake compassion, everything else is a piece of cake. And I, uh, I think that's, uh, that's where I started, trying to act like I cared. And um, I think I, I think I, I think I'm a different person than I was 
So, so periodically I run into somebody who'll say, I took you for ecclesiology 20 years ago. You were really angry. I said, yeah, I was. I was bitter. I, I had been fired at a really difficult church experience. Uh, yeah, I was angry. And I probably, I don't, I don't like that guy very much at all. Um, I meet him every once in a while. He, he still pops up. At times. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I tell him to leave. Um, because, cause, so, yeah, I, so I'm nervous even speculating about whether what you said is true. But I appreciate it. And that's really what I'm trying yeah, to do. Yeah. Uh, I guess I probably hope you would, or else you wouldn't be true to those things. <laughs> so, well, yeah, I, I mean, I... Um, when you're going through difficult times, there are not so helpful people who have all the answers yeah. and they have all the advice. And I never really found much of that stuff very helpful. Yeah. Um, because as I say to people, if you think there's an easy answer to my problem, you probably you don't understand the problem because I thought of the easy answers. Yeah. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that I don't I don't think the world operates according to karma. I think good things happen to bad people and bad yeah. things happen to good people. And there's no necessary connection between what I did and what happened and what you did and what happened. And yeah, yeah. So. so you really hold to that. I've, I've noticed this with myself in counseling too. Like, you know, Lewis says, pretend you care, you end up caring. Is that kind of what you're saying a little bit? So is, is that where Hendrix stole it? I think it's where he stole it yeah. from. <laughs> I think it's it's either a mere Christianity or, or screw tape. I, can't I, remember, I think but. that's I think it's right. I think yeah. it, it really is true. What happens there, do you think? How does that process work? <clears throat> um, interesting question. For for me, it is to it has happened as I am in places or to use the cool buzzword, spaces, mm. where there are hurting, grieving people. And I, and I realize, so I'm in this situation where I know the Sunday school answer, but when I was in a similar circumstance, somebody gave me that Sunday school answer, and it not only didn't help, it ticked me off, mm -hmm. uh, and it caused more pain. So what do, what do I say in that situation? Well... If I start crying, then I can't say something stupid. So if I just let down the, the walls and let the tears flow, it looks like I care. And what I've experienced over the years is I actually do then start to care. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's, a, there's only so many walls of self-protection yeah. you can or I discovered there's only so many walls of self-protection I can build around myself um, and that there's a lot of hurting people in the world and they don't need somebody's simple answer. Yeah. Some They don't need answers at all. Sometimes what I needed was for somebody to say, um, it's not about you and you're not alone and yeah. I'm not going to leave you um, because if you grew up in a, you know, in a karmic-based world where love is always reciprocal and it always has to be payback. Um, when people don't operate according to that way, it, it was transformative yeah. for me. So I want to be one of those people who changes the world. Yeah, yeah.
I mean, that's that and, one. And I don't mean by that what so I, so I heard what I just said. Yeah. I don't mean by that what many people mean by that. I really do believe Bono's right, that grace is the thought that can change the world. Yeah. So I want to watch it. I want to watch it happen. So, yeah. Um, I, I talk a lot about grace because I've experienced it and yeah. I've needed it. And there are all kinds of things I'm not going to tell you. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and you made a good argument for why vulnerability is so special, like to the point where you can kind of fake care and it still lowers those defenses. Mm-hmm. You know, you crying in front of them, maybe it wasn't a, in a place initially of connection, but for whatever reason, it lowers defenses. Mm-hmm. And that being the vulnerability which grace allows us to go to, right? Mm-hmm. The, the the gospel frees us. Jesus talking about freedom and mm-hmm. um, preaching to the choir. But I, I just think it's an amazing idea of, of if we all are lowered our defenses through grace, we can. that's how we can come to the table. That's how we can connect. It's awesome. It, and I've got this long list of stories of being in a classroom where somebody's tears just completely change mm. the whole culture of the class yeah. that day. I still feel uncomfortable when yeah. I cry because um, we're not supposed to. Yeah. Apparently. Charged, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And not only, yeah, they're crying not only lowers their defenses, it lowers everybody else's defenses. Mm-hmm. So that vulnerability think, upon vulnerability. I think there really is something. It's I think it's part of what it means to be in the image of God that we sympathize with people who are in pain. Mm-hmm. Um and, and the person who doesn't, and I, I've got a couple of those stories too. <laughs> uh, the person who said to me, so it sounds like you think there's something wrong with me that I'm not crying. I don't know whether there's something wrong with you or not. People ex- express emotions in different yeah. ways. And I'm just kind of interested that you think I'm judging you because you're, I'm crying and you're not. Somehow you think that's judgment, but. I think there's something going on in you. There, you need to go see it. I didn't say that. <laughs> you see it. But it, um, yeah. yeah, but I've I've had a lot of interaction with counselors that have helped a great deal. I think everybody needs counselors. I hope so. I'd like a job. <laughs> no, I think I think you're right on. Yeah. I would require every student at Dallas Seminary to do ten hours or so of counseling mm. if I had my way. Yeah. Interesting. It's not a matter of if, but when. Yeah. And if you already if you already have contacts, <laughs> I hope I never forget that first day when we were so desperate that we drove to Richardson and sat down in the counselor's office. Um, would have been a whole lot more comfortable if we had had a pattern of so you wait until you're desperate and yeah and no, probably would have. Uh, not allow the loud things to get to the point where we were desperate. You know. But those days, on the one hand, seemed like a long time ago. On the other mm-hmm. hand, they seemed like just last week. And the memories keep coming back around. It's probably a good thing. Um, at the risk of a terrible joke, I think we should talk about the elephant in the room. That's actually what it's called. I don't know if you were trying to set that up, or <laughs> and and it's and it's a uh, subsequent poop mm. behind it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear what your what your special relic is. We kind of ask. I don't know your idea behind it. A special yeah. show and tell for we adults. Would, at, at, in, in attempting to understand more of the person, we ask them to bring. Uh, um, 
bring an item on that perhaps has some meaning to them. Um, could be personal, could be something from another culture, could be just mm. something random and interesting story around it. So we have an elephant in the room today. Mm. What does this it, mean to you? So <laughs> relic was an interesting word because I think of things like Catherine of Siena's head. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Couldn't even take a picture. Do you have that, that at your home? Or uh, no, <laughs> but I did see it uh, when we were in Siena. Wow, nice. Uh, and their guards walking around, making sure you don't take pictures. Wow. So I just I started uh, early on in teaching, referring to the problem of evil as the elephant in the room, and said you don't have any meaningful theological conversation that lasts any reasonable amount of time before you have to address the elephant yeah and um and i I discovered that so we have this conversation in faculty periodically and faculty members will say so where in theology courses do you guys talk about the problem of evil and i say every course in fact (laughs) You can hardly get out of a week without the elephant. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the thing about the elephant is, though, he is, uh, he's a kind of a cute, lovable creature. But he's alive. And if you feed him, that's when you're addressing the elephant in the room. Then he poops. And when he poops, then you've got to do something. Either you have to clean up the poop, or you just ignore him or you spray a, a deodorant or something to cover up the smell it'd be better you say well it'd be better not to feed him oh you can't you can't live in a fallen world and not address the elephant in the room and you can't and so you literally can't avoid feeding him so early on in my career one day um i used that as an illustration came into it was a one-week class came into class the next day early there were only a handful of people in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I looked at the podium, and there sits the elephant and the poop. <laughs> and I looked at the people in the room, and I knew exactly it was Katie who had done it. Uh, she just kind of smiled. Uh, so <laughs> the, 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 this elephant and his poop is right behind me at my desk all the time. I love it. So every time my now six-year-old granddaughter comes in the room, she's been doing this since she was two or three. She comes around, she can play, play with the, <laughs> the elephant. Can you give us a, a quick uh, rundown on how you clean up the shit in your classroom? Um, we... Uh, with the depend, problem of evil? It depends what it is. Okay. Uh, uh, my answer to the problem of evil, I, I don't have one. Oh, I meant like uh, like how you handle it in the classroom. I didn't know. It, yeah. de- it depends what it is. Yeah. Um, um, if, the, if there is one thing I am convinced of, it said God is good. He is never the cause of evil. He is never. He never uses evil. His fingers are never on the instrument of destruction. God is always good all the time. So if that's true, and that might be the most provocative, shocking thing I teach, surprisingly, uh, then when there is fallenness and brokenness, uh, we've got to address where it came from. And I, I think it's really important, really helpful, that we acknowledge that God's sovereign over what happens in his world and that God, who could stop it, didn't stop evil. So he's not responsible for it in the sense that he doesn't cause it, but he is responsible uh, in that he 
didn't stop it. And so yeah. whether it's, and the, the, the thing about being involved in the lives of people, whether it's burying, I mean, these are just from this, this semester, whether yeah. it's burying a family member, whether it's losing my job, whether it's, um, um, I got COVID again, whether it's, I mean, I, yeah. it, it, we have opportunities to talk about elephant poop. Come on, pretty there. often. Yeah, and I, um, I realized in thinking about this that sometimes uh, I go through periods without using the elephant in the room illustration. But yeah. I, I try to keep always coming because everybody recognizes the elephant in the room. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I think it's a, a, it would be cruel and it would be heartless and it would be a dereliction of our duties as stewards of creation not to feed the elephant. Yeah. I mean, you have to feed it. And then you have to take care of the waste product in the hope that one day um, elephants won't poop anymore. Yeah. Is that, so then is, to follow this metaphor maybe farther than you wanted to, is uh, spraying Febreze, you know, like you said, is that kind of just ignoring it or kind of not bringing up pain? What do you see that as? No, that's actually ignoring it is to say, I don't smell anything. Uh, okay. What are you talking about? I don't smell anything. Just pretend it's not yeah, you pre um, Which is a pretty common way that people deal with yeah. the problem of evil. They redefine it or ignore it. And you can do that, kind of brings us back to the earlier conversation. You can do that until it's right in your face, yeah. until it's in your house. Um, no, you spraying Fabrice is somehow n not ignoring that it's there, but trying to make it smell better. Mm. Uh, I think the, the only way you can solve the problem is to get rid of it. That ignoring it doesn't work. Um, you can dry it and then burn it or something. Yeah. <laughs> Which would actually be functional. I'm not sure what how that would work in the the Odyssey question. I'm just enjoying this conversation yeah, but, a lot. <laughs> Febreze is uh, is an attempt to say no, it doesn't stink. Yeah. Well, Making that problem less than it is, yeah. maybe. Is that yeah. 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 And that's a really good point. I mean the, the value of the elephant poop is uh, on the one hand, you can't have a conversation about a good God and not deal with the problem of evil. So you're, it's always going to be there. Right. But, but I think sometimes we need actually in our safe, privileged uh, worlds to actually become aware of the evil that exists in other people's lives. Yeah. And to, to try, this is one of the things I'm trying to do. In a in a classroom setting, is to create a space where people are able to share with one another. People know what's what's going on yeah. in their lives. Mm -hmm. um, I don't use, so yeah. I'm, I'm trying to create that kind of a that kind of a place. It's not not that I'm going out of my way to feed the elephant something that's going to give him diarrhea. Um, that'd be kind of messy. <laughs> But yeah, he, you feed him, he's gonna poop. Yeah, that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So yeah, this, gotta this deal is, with it. This yeah. is one of my favorite things. I got coffee mugs and stuff in the behind me. I got a, a, a Jesus action figure. Nice. And, but I, I figured that. I, I like it. that a lot. I'm probably gonna steal that. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> not this particularly the idea. I love it. <laughs> and I just love yeah. that we spent like ten minutes talking about poop. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. never expected that really. <laughs> That is a, honestly a wonderful illustration. Really appreciate that. Um, one thing that 
I, I do remember you talking about uh, on on the problem of evil was that difference between accountability and responsibility, and I still I still bring that up to people to this day. You know, if you do want to hold um, sovereignty in this really ultimate sense, then you do have to differentiate accountability and responsibility. So, and yeah. we have to distinguish between and. I don't know any better language than this, between what God does and what God allows or permits. Right. Uh, get pushback from people who say, this sounds like passive. It is passive. I mean, the God, I mean, read the Psalms. They're often yelling at God, telling him to get up and do something. He's yeah. not, it's, it's what we see happening on the cross where Jesus is pleading with him to, to do something and he does nothing. I mean, that, that, that's in no way minimizing, which is also really interesting to me, uh, picking up a conversation we actually had. Mm -hmm. um, so it baffles me that people say your view of, you have a low view of God's sovereignty. You want to say, you realize I'm a determinist. Yeah. I believe everything that happens in God's world was determined by God. I, I mean, I'm not doing the compatibilist, and the mullet, I'm no, none of that stuff. I, 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 it's pretty hard to have a more robust understanding of, uh, of sovereignty than that. Unless you cross the line and put the instrument of evil in the hand of a good God. And that's a line. So we, we don't cross the line that says evil is not evil. And we don't cross the line that said God causes evil. But determinism doesn't mean that. Yeah. Hmm. That's one of those things, that, uh, and since I raised it um, to defend myself, uh, there are certain theological convictions I hold in order to make my job more difficult. Hmm. And... That's that's one. It'd be easier to to, to choose one of the less yeah. challenging views. But would you say that's the most controversial view that you hold, or among them? In my experience, the most controversial view I hold is that God is good all the time. Hmm. I get pushed back on that every single semester, which is interesting. That's a pretty common phrase, but maybe one that we don't take to its ends. Right, because yeah. pe people will say it, but they don't actually believe it. Um, I discover um, because they've been taught and they teach that um, everything, they, they have this perverted view of sovereignty that says cancer is a good gift from God. And I can take you to prominent Christian writers who say that. And like, so you, then God is not good all the time. And then they say, no, but you're defining good in human terms, not in God's terms. So cancer doesn't feel good to you, but it's good. I don't know what world you live in. Uh, I, I buried both of my parents from cancer. That, that is not good. It's, it's, it just baffles me that definitions of terms are, are, are so hard for some people. And I think some of that's trying to make sense of what doesn't make sense. So I've had more than one conversation, including one with a colleague one time who said, so what's your theodicy? I said, I don't have one. He said, you have to have one. You teach theology. I said, okay. So what's yours? And he gave me his. And I said, here's why that doesn't work. Mm. He said, but it works for me. He said, oh, okay, that's fine. But yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't think, I don't think you can argue compellingly that this is the best of all possible worlds 
because I know there's a better world coming. We left one that was better than this. Um, and surely, if I can conceive of a world in which my two parents don't get cancer, which would be better than a world in which they do, surely God can conceive of that. So mm-hmm. yeah. I don't. But, but yet, what I do, what I do know, and where I am, where 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 I find my hope is that one day God gets the last word. Mm. We watch him over and over again respond to rebellion with mercy and grace. And one day in the resurrection, uh, there will be no more evil. So I say to people who think pain is good, who think cancer is good, who think sickness, I said, you're going to be really disappointed mm. in the new creation where none of that stuff is there. Wow. If I may, um, one thing that I, I, I've realized in, in trying to work through these thoughts um, from you with you with others is that it the, the multiple worlds idea that there can be a better world it doesn't fit in very well with our belief uh, in, in sin and a fallen world because we sin and cause things to get worse and so I, I completely agree with you a world where we sin less is a better world than where we live right now and it's not hard to imagine and Another thing that I, I've been working with or trying trying out, because um, I try things out, you're completely, it's something you mentioned earlier, it's like I need to try it out to see if I believe it, um, is this approach to where if I'm talking to someone who prefers a strong view of free will, I will use one explanation uh, of, let's say, God's sovereignty, um, the problem of evil, theodicy, whatever it may be, um, for them that fits in with their worldview better. And yet with someone else who mm. is more of a determinist, I'll, I'll give them a different explanation. Mm-hmm. And I don't think both are equally valid. I think that there's one truth. But at the same time, both views hold that God is good all the time. I, I, I'm just curious, what mm. is your thought about, about that? And how does that relate back to our conversation about reaching people in different cultures with different mm. beliefs? <clears throat> So I would have no problem agreeing with you that there is one truth. I just don't think we know what it is. And so on this question, I think there are multiple possibilities. And what might work for one and in one context won't work in another um, because we're trying to make sense of something that doesn't really make sense. I mean, if there were a magic bullet, if there were a, a, a blue pill, um, we would just take that. We just shoot the bullet. Yeah. But I think there, I think there are certain, there are some things that God hasn't. Certain questions God hasn't answered. Um, and he, he wants us to wrestle with them. I think the other thing, though, that has to be said about the, the best of all possible worlds is that one of the things we learned from watching God at work, one of the things we learned from the biblical story is that God's response to rebellion is always gracious and it always ends up with something better than was before. So the world that God originally created was good. It's not perfect. And the only way we get from that world to the new creation is through rebellion and sin. The fall, it doesn't make the fall good, 
it makes God's response to the fall good. But if we take that too far, then we end up in Romans 6, and we should be, I mean, as horrific as evil is in the world in which we live, it could be worse. Um, so this isn't the worst of all possible worlds either. But if, in fact, God's way of responding to rebellion is grace, so we should actually celebrate that there would be more sin and rebellion so that there's more grace and God gets more glory, to which the Apostle Paul uses the strongest possible condemnation. Yeah. That's crazy talk yeah. or something worse than that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there is there are a lot of... I'm also of the opinion that there's not one, only one way to do church or only one approach to, um, to, to doing church so that all these different uh, approaches, all these different views are, they're all true hmm. um, in one particular context and not in another. I'm not a relativist. Um, I do think there is transcendent reality. I do think reality exists. I do think there are some things that are true always, everywhere, and at all times. There is a God. The wages of sin is death, but there are exceptions to that one, too. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm also really, partly because of interest in culture and method, I'm interested in the truth question. And, mm. Uh, and, and how quickly we punt to this is absolute truth. That's probably the greatest. You didn't ask, but I'm going to ask the question I wanted to ask. I wanted you to ask. I think that's the greatest problem, the, the apologetic problem the church is facing today. And it's a really interesting um, dichotomy. It's the biblical theological literacism illiteracy. Let me start again. It's the biblical and theological illiteracy yeah. in the church and people outside the church who are actually reading the Bible and trying to make sense of it. So, yeah. uh, I mean, what do, you, what do you do with those, the genocide text? What do you do with the human sacrifice text? What do you do with the rape of a, you see a beautiful woman in battle, you take her to be your wife. What do you do with the slavery text? I mean, those are, those are actually in the Bible, and people are reading it. So it's, I, I just this just hit me recently. It's the it's this really strange dichotomy. These people aren't reading the Bible, and that yet they believe it's God's word and it's true. And they're in the church. And they're yeah. in the church. Yeah. And these people are not in the church because they read the Bible. And the way we engage those questions is radically different than it was 20, even 20 years ago. I don't think there's a more difficult um, apologetic question than those questions now. What's been fascinating to me recently is when, I'm not quite sure how to describe this kind of a student, but students who get it. Mm -hmm. And they're asking this question, <laughs> saying, I, I, I know you think I should have an answer. I, I really don't. Hmm. Uh, we, we, have to do, we, we really have to wrestle with this God who seems to be different 
because Marcionism's off the table, but those Old Testament texts, that God sure seems to be different than the God we see in the New. And I, and I, those are difficult, difficult questions and challenges. We got to acknowledge that poop too. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I may be off on this, but in my head, speaking as someone that's really affected by postmodernism, one of the things I've always felt a really deep sense of is like not needing certainty for things. And I hear that when you say faith seeking understanding and if I'm right about that being part of the postmodern movement, so speak to that first, but um, it sounds like you're a little bit all about that. Like, especially when you talk about, yeah, there's absolute truth, but, um, but you know, we don't know it most of the time, right? We don't know it exactly. We can't prove it hundred percent. Um, so is this loss of certainty a good thing for the church? So I read a little book back in the early 1990s written by an English prof. Um, I'm not sure where he was, um, but it was called The Myth of Certainty. And that book, so I read it, and then there are a couple other books on the Parker, I think, was the last name, um, The Gift of Doubt. Um, and then, who's the other guy? Between Two Worlds. <clears throat> uh, oh, it was right there. Uh, so it got, got me thinking about the, the, the shift that happened when epistemology became the most important thing in modernity um, and the impact it had on Christianity. Mm -hmm. And to realize that there is nothing more inconsistent than to be a person of faith and certainty. That the opposite of faith is no faith, but the opposite of faith is also certainty. We we, we believe what we haven't seen. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Um, that the, the swing away from, the turn away from the certainty to there are, and this, this is what terrifies people because they think the opposite of certainty is you can't know anything. They, no. There are certain things we can know. There is a God. Mm -hmm. There is a God. Um, everybody dies. I mean, there's certain things we, we can know that are, that are, I mean, they're properly basic. They, they're, yeah. they, they, we, that's where we start. <clears throat> but then there's, there's certain, there's other things we can have some degree of confidence about. And then there are other things that are in a completely different category. So I, I think it's really important to be able to distinguish between the things that we know that we know that's a pretty small list, summarized in the creeds. Uh, and then the things that are we have a little less confidence about, and then the things out here, and sure. maybe we go way out here to things that don't matter at all. And, and when, when, it, when everything is in the middle, everything is worth fighting for, when everything is a matter of certainty, then faith ceases to be faith. It's become something else. So, I mean, I grew up in a world where every evangelist came through and said, you can be sure of heaven as if you're already there. I'm not even sure I'm here. Like, I, I don't know. I, yeah. I I never felt good enough. Yeah. And especially that I was growing up in a, in a, 
Christian community have believed in loss of salvation. So if if I don't have the kind of confidence and certainty you do, and you're telling me that I have to be perfect all the time in order to get to heaven, I, I'm screwed. Yeah. I mean, that's the technical theological term. Yeah. Uh, and and I watched people in my world leave the faith. Um, I never left, and I know I never left because I never put myself in. Um, that because deep down inside I knew this can this couldn't be right, but when everybody tells you that it, it is, like I, I I'm not the the kid who says the emperor is not wearing any clothes. But there were times when I felt like, am I the only crazy yeah. one who's who's asking these questions? And then I mean it's been so incredibly helpful for me over the years. God's brought into my life people who have been safe to ask questions and fellow uh, fellow stragglers. So yeah, I, I think one of the great benefits for us in the postmodern turn is that faith is once again in vogue. I mean, nobody today believes that you can prove everything. I mean, yeah. obviously two plus two equals four in base four and above. Probably. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's true by definition. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, but then everything. So you know, I use illustrations of, of color blindness. Mm. Uh, I I know what colors look like. I think, but I also learned from an intern of mine who's a woman, who's colorblind. Uh, they've taught me all my life that only men are colorblind, and she's mm -hmm. all of a sudden it made sense why she wore this the colors that she wore because uh, she. So how do you how do you pick what you wear? She said, "My husband lays them out for me, mm -hmm. and we buy the stuff that that goes together. So it's hard for me to mess it up." Like, oh my goodness, that that makes perfect sense. I, on the other hand, I think I see colors. Yeah, but how how would I know? Yeah, right. I mean, maybe my perception of the world is that limit. It's like so. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I, I yeah. but I also think it's important in acknowledging. The, the chastened optimism and a healthy skepticism and a humility about knowing doesn't mean that we can't know anything. Yeah. And I think that's what, that's what the keepers of the old order are so concerned about, that yeah. if, if, if we can't know this with certainty, then how do we know we can know Anything. They're afraid of that house of cards falling yeah. down. Do you do you like? Um, I didn't know we talked about Alan Planiga. Do you like that kind of language of warranted belief? Mm -hmm. I think I've used that before. Yeah. I kind of with friends. And, yeah, I think he's right about know. that. I think he's right about certain properly basic views. Uh, we don't sit down and defend these every time we we start. And for Christians, <clears throat> that should be Christian orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. We don't right. we don't approach the scriptures. We don't approach the world. And say, I don't know whether God is good or not. I don't know whether God is triune. Of course, He is. This is, this is where we start. Because mm -hmm. if you need a Bible verse, if 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 you need a Bible verse, I don't want to say this. If you don't know that God exists until you have a Bible verse that says so, you've only got a handful of texts. Mm -hmm. It's like, and if you need Theos used with Jesus, you've uh, even less. Right. Uh, but if you have um, if you read the Bible believing that uh, what Christians believe. And so you have certainty about that. And so I, I'm, comf I'm comfortable describing having certainty that God exists, even though my confidence is probably about 98%. Yeah.
Yeah. I could be wrong about that. Right. That sure. Highly unlikely. Uh, and highly unlikely, not because of a Bible verse, but because of Jesus. <laughs> like, like, how do you explain Jesus? And I explain the followers of Jesus. Uh, it's just that's just really hard sell for me. Yep. That these guys got together and made up this unbelievable story, and they died for it. That's just that's yep. really hard to. Not to mention the fact that he came back from the dead, and that's a pretty significant trick. I, yeah, yeah. I'll follow the guy who who can pull that one off. It's, so we talked a little bit about grace earlier and how important of a concept that is. I think it's what sets, a lot of people think it's what sets Christianity apart from other religions. Um, it's, it has the capacity to change the world. One thing I picked up on is when you're talking about postmodernism, there's a lot of faith uh, embedded in the culture at this point. Is there, do you imagine a, a, a world or a culture where there is grace embedded in it? Um, could I imagine it? Yes. Does it exist? No. Is there any way we could bring that about, or how could we facilitate that? Here's the great irony that the 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 one thing that can make the case that Trinity is also what separates Christianity from any other sure. religion, but they, those two things come together. I think grace and Trinity. Uh, that that the people. The religion that's founded in grace and the people who talk the most about grace and the people who should be uh, consistently living out grace are some of the greatest perpetrators of karma mm. and the law of sowing and reaping and cause and effect. Um, this work is really messy because I'm not arguing that cause and effect isn't true. I mean, this guy's going to drop every time I drop it. Yeah. Because um, the world does operate according to it. But the good news of the gospel is what you put out doesn't come back to you. Mm. That's the law of sowing and reaping doesn't apply to us. That we actually, we, the guilty walk away unpunished. That God actually gives us something we could never earn, we could never repay, we could never deserve. And th there's no way you can pay it back. There's no way you can pay it forward. We are not debtors. I mean, uh, oh, even that to grace a, a great a debtor song is completely misunderstood, I think completely misunderstands grace. That if you're trying to pay back, then you, you really don't understand that the gift is mm. free. Yeah. So I, uh, this is what keeps me going. In the midst of all my cynicism and skepticism and negativism, uh, I, I believe it is actually possible that people could live out the principles of grace. I, which is why I push back sometimes at an institution that talks a lot about grace but operates according to precedent. Mm. Uh, I think once in a while, I think, I think I need to push back and say, that I don't know, grace doesn't establish precedent. So just because we do this for this student doesn't mean we have to do it for every other one. Mm. And I know we have accreditation standards and I know we're gonna get sued and I know all that kind of stuff. But if we don't acknowledge, if we don't recognize, if we don't verbalize, that we're actually not being gracious, that we begin to think this way of living is normal. And so mm -hmm. I, I would love to be part of the, I know he didn't say it, but the, I'd love to be part of the change I want to see in the world. Um, and I, 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 I continue to hold out hope. Because um, I'm, I'm deep down inside, I am an optimist when it comes to the transformative power of the gospel. And all the evidence of the contrary notwithstanding, I'm going to continue to believe 
that this actually is possible. And I, I know what it feels like to be forgiven. I know what it feels like to receive gifts. I know what it feels like to not get what I deserved. And um, I, th I think people who have received grace are the most passionate mediators of that grace to others. And don't disabuse me of that notion. I, I've got to believe that it's possible. Yeah. Are there two or three books or writings that you would recommend to both seminarians and the church as a whole that get across ideas of how to embody grace, ideas of how to spread grace? Mm -hmm. Philip Yancey's um, What's So Amazing About Grace mm -hmm. and Vanishing Grace are absolutely amazing. Uh, and they're pretty accessible. Uh, I would add Yancey's uh, Rumors of Another World. Okay. Uh, I think it's, uh, I think there are more than rumors of another world. I think there's actually evidence of a, another world. Uh, and uh, Anthony's a little more technical, but Anthony Spina's Faith of the Outsiders is a book that every Christian should read and then I'm remembering should probably add Brendan Manning's Ragamuffin Gospel to the mm. to the list too. You asked for three, I gave but I gave you three different authors. Sure. That works. <laughs> yeah. I I know that we share Rich Mullins appreciation. So when you mentioned Brendan Manning is <laughs> I'm all about it. <laughs> it's Rich who forced me to read Manning. Yeah. Uh, when when I heard him say the question Peter asks at the gate is, have you read Ragamuffin Gospel? If you haven't, you can't get into heaven. I probably better read it. Wow. Mm -hmm. But it also was a student uh, in Tampa, Florida, um, who gave me the book. Uh, he said, bring it back the next time you come back. So I read it on the plane. Nice. Uh, uh, yeah. And I, I, I love Manning. Um, this is a man who struggled with addiction and all kinds of stuff. Whiskey and, um, I really appreciate books like that that do show a real rawness, uh, a side of living. Um, Philip Yancey also writes very down to earth and, and makes it really readable. Uh, one thing I've noticed in our current church culture is that there's been a movement away from understanding theology, a movement even away from formal training. Um, perhaps even even too much in favor of reading authors that, um, you know, maybe they understand the technical things, but I've heard, I've heard people say in the church, like, I don't think theology is for me to understand. I don't see the point of it. Uh, how, how do you respond to that point of view? <clears throat> uh, you need to understand what theology actually is. If theology is words about God, then you can't be a Christian and not be talking about God. Mm -hmm. I know what they're talking about. They're talking about scholastic. They're yeah, the headiness. And, yeah, yeah. And I, I get that. Uh, but I also, I'm back now to, it's a great irony for me, that there are, there are a lot of non-Christians who are reading the Bible. Mm. And some of them are reading it in order to criticize it. But some of them are reading it and trying to make sense of these stories that make no sense to them. So if there's ever been a time where lay people need theology to be able to respond to those questions it's now but i also think and this is and this is methodologically important for me um i think it's the way we teach theology 
um, is, so, so I've done a couple of um, conferences and I did a church thing for a while. We called it Theology for the Rest of Us, mm. um, which was a bit, my goal was kind of to demystify the theological task. If you, if you start a, in most churches, you have a Bible study or a theology class, nobody's going to show up, mm. which is also really kind of interesting to me. Um, and, and yet they're, they will show up for this study or, and there are, <laughs> I'm just remembering it's 20 years ago now. I did, I was asked to do a series on the attributes of God and the last one I dealt with Trinity and a long term member of that church, kind of been believer for a long, long time, came to me and said, if this is so important, why have we never heard it before? That, that God is Trinity? You never heard before? He said, never. Mm. Like, oh, yeah. I think you did and didn't catch it. But, yeah, we've, we've got a... Um, we, we, Hendricks used to say, he probably stole this from, from somebody else, too. You gotta put the cookies <laughs> like on. most people. That's what we all do. You, right. you got to put the cookies on the bottom shelf. I don't like the metaphor because you put the cookies on the bottom shelf, the rats get at them. And kids will lift them up a little bit, make mm -hmm. them reach a little bit for it. I like the uh, good artists borrow, great artists steal. It's Picasso. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, um, but, I mean, the truth is, we, um, the way we, you have to create a, 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 you have to create a need. I wrestle with how to say that. Mm. You have to create a need. Uh, we could say we have a perceived need, you have a taste. You lead a horse to water, you can't make him drink, but you give him salt, yeah. and he'll be inclined to drink. And I, I think we have to figure out a way to help people understand that theology is not something that you have to have a PhD or a master's degree to do. That when you're when you're thinking about even when you're deciding whether to go out of your, to turn right out of your driveway or left out of your driveway, that's a theological question. Mm -hmm. And it might make all the difference between living and dying, depending if there's a truck coming this way. I mean, it, it, that all of life is so connected. And I mean, those are the kinds of things I love to do. People kind of roll their eyes because they don't care much about that stuff. So at the very least, back to your question, mm -hmm. If we have them, encourage them to read works that are, um, how do I say this, subtly doing good theology without calling attention to it, which is one of the, I mean, Yancey is just so amazing uh, at that. And some of it's because Yancey is so widely read. And I, at ETS a couple of years ago, <clears throat> we had him come in and talk to Christianity and culture mm -hmm. session. And he just he just stood up there and talked about the stuff he had been reading. And I mean, no, we're not talking about fluff stuff, being deep theological and philosophical and scientific. Like this is absolutely amazing. So when you write, and it sounds so simple, it's coming from a depth and a breadth that many of us yeah. don't have. Wow. Uh, I, I I mentioned uh, my I think my very no, my second my second ETS paper, um, and I mentioned it was a paper in Edwards because I was doing Edwards right. stuff. <laughs> we were on slaves, um, and there's no way to justify that. 
uh, and I mentioned dumbing down, and a student, a guy in the back of the room said, that language is offensive. Mm. Because people in our churches are reading technical literature for their job, and when we talk about dumbing down the Bible and theology for them, we're, we're, we're dismissive of them and disrespectful. I think about that a lot. So how do we communicate appropriate to the context, appropriate to what people know and understand? So you're probably giving them a Warfield um, article to read is a little over the heads of, mm. I mean, he wrote in really long sentences. Yeah. Using big words. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred years ago as well. So the language was somewhat different. So, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. And it's not that people are, they're uneducated or dumb. They, they, they're educated in different ways. And, and that's, I mean, that's the other, you, um, it was, it used to be not that long ago that I could walk into a class and have a great deal of confidence that almost everybody in the room was carrying a Bible. Mm. Those days are over. Mm. I don't even carry a Bible when I go to church, except when I'm preaching, and then it's a then it's a prop because my I'm using my iPad where I have my notes and yeah. the text. So, um, yeah. So I guess one uh, final question for me, and maybe Blake has one or two more, but. Um, have you adopted a a meaning of life or a, a statement that it encomp- encompasses um, the goal for for your life? No. Okay. See, I can't answer a question yes or no. <laughs> <laughs> we got that from your emails. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm the really short Half email. A sentence email yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, my boss and I have, he writes really long emails. Yeah. And, uh, my goal was actually I got it one time. I had one letter. I gave him a K. Nice, wow. nice. I win. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about that, okay. um, and I thought about making something up. Um, and there, I mean, there are all kinds of things. You serve an audience of one, mm-hmm. uh, but, but I really, I really don't. I'm um, other than other than I am. I have been. They've been radically changed by the grace of God, and I want to see it change other people too. Yeah. Well, I think that that statement's going to make this last question difficult, maybe. But I like I like asking people this question. I've heard a lot of different and really good answers all across the board. Um, is there anything, or or maybe not? Um, that could be shown to you as evidence and convince you that God does not exist, that Christ doesn't exist, Christianity mm-hmm. isn't real. Yeah, his body. Okay. Pull it out of the grave. Yeah, show that res- resurrection didn't happen. It'll make me question. I still believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Wish I had somebody say that exact same answer, too. So. Yeah, I mean, it's a really, it's an interesting answer to me because it shows the importance of the resurrection specifically, both the incarnation and the resurrection. As, yeah, proof of the power of of God, proof of the power over death, specifically, mm-hmm. the final enemy. You know, Christ already conquered. So, yeah, and, which is why it is so important that we get the gospel right there, and stop calling death good, stop calling it a relief, stop 
removing the horror of the last and greatest enemy, which Jesus died to defeat. And so, yeah, we live not in his death, we live in his life. And so, I don't know, it's, I, I feel like my tongue's kind of in my cheek when I say that, because I don't know how you would prove that it actually sure. was his body. Mm. Uh, I don't have any DNA evidence, yeah. uh, so I don't know how you would actually prove It's this. not like the evidence, you know, it, it, it's basically impossible for that evidence to exist, yeah. so... Which is kind of my point. Yeah. Absolutely <laughs> yeah. valid. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I mean, I, this sounds a little more melodramatic than I really intended. I've tried to stop believing, I've tried to give it back. <laughs> and I can't, I, I can't not be changed by what I've experienced. And yeah, it all starts with the empty tomb. And then we'll work backwards through the Old Testament. Those stories have to be read in light of that pivotal event in human history, which actually isn't the pivotal event in human history. The pivotal event in human history is when all the other dead come out of the grave. Because the only thing that's going to fix us is resurrection. His resurrection hasn't yet done it. But it's the um, it's the first fruits of the um, of the resurrection of the dead. It was uh, I've had vivid memories of things like this. My good friend when his dad died, he texted me and said, the only thing that's going to fix this is resurrection. That's, that's it. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kreider. It's been a pleasure and I, I really have learned a lot from you. So thank you. Great. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the Masters of Theology podcast, you can go to mastersoftheology.com. We hope that you've enjoyed this conversation with theologians, and be sure to tune in next week for another. Thanks again, and farewell.